Our gospel lesson today is found in John chapter 12, reading verses 20 through 50. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And if anyone and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart. And turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. 
But the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come today, we confess that there is darkness within us, but in your Son, there is light, and in your Son, there is life. And so we ask today that you grant us to drink from the river of your delights. It is only in your light that we behold and see light. And so by your Spirit, we ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over the next weeks, leading through the season of Lent all the way to Holy Week and Easter, we'll be tracing the Gospel of John in its second half. This Gospel has classically been divided in two parts, the Book of Signs running roughly in the first 11 chapters and the Book of Glory running from chapter 12 through chapter 20. And so we will be in these final chapters in Jesus' discussions with the disciples as he's preparing them for his imminent death. And so today we begin in the latter half of chapter 12 as Jesus enters into the holy city of Jerusalem, returning to the shouts and acclamations of the people and yet also to plots and to all kinds of subterfuge seeking to undermine him. Roughly 10 years ago, our family was visiting my parents in eastern North Carolina. It's a week of vacation, and my parents owned a small river house on the Pamlico River. It's a large, expansive river in eastern North Carolina that's something like the St. John's. It drains the eastern portion of the state before it dumps into the Pamlico Sound. My middle son, Ware, was particularly fond of riding the jet ski with me during those days, and he particularly was fond of riding the jet ski on turbulent days when the waves would swell and there were white caps and we could jump from wave to wave. So on one afternoon, we decided to go wave jumping and to cross the river. To cross the river is pretty arduous. It's multiple miles wide, and we were heading towards Bath Creek in Bath, North Carolina. As we came to the mouth of Bath Creek, we began to note that the waves were getting excessively large and the wind was picking up and there were storms that were coming and so it was time at that point to turn back. We launched off one particular swell, cleared another one and landed in the trough of the next wave but you knew right when you hit that something wasn't right. It was so hard. And surely, sure enough, The engine was no longer running. I tried for a good solid 10 minutes to get that engine to crank, trying to will it back to life. Because as I looked around, I knew that there weren't a whole lot of options. Here we are, several hundred yards offshore from one bank, several miles from the other, and many, many miles from home. And so there was literally not a whole lot of options. And so I sat there trying to crank it, taking stock of what we were exactly going to do. The shore was desolate. This was a section of river frontage owned by a corporation that had a nice uh, estate and manor there on the point of, uh, of Bath Creek. 
and it was miles distance for the next residence. And so there was one option. After taking them all in, I knew that I had to simply get off, check how deep it was, and begin to walk or begin to swim. And so that's what we did. The waves were rather large, and so the water, every, every time it would wash over, would go over my head. And we had about a half-mile walk. But every other option was foreclosed on. There was nothing else to be done. It was simply walk it in, walk home, get to the next place, find a phone. It was a moment somewhat of desperation. I'll never forget my son's face as he realized the jet ski was not recranking. And friends, as we read the gospel narrative, we get that same sense of panic. That Jesus, who has been speaking of his coming hour, who's been speaking of his death, he begins to turn it up a notch and becomes more imminent. And the disciples are progressively realizing that every other option is being foreclosed on. That there's only one way out of this situation. That Jesus' life and ministry was leading to one culminating point in the city of Jerusalem. And there's one way ahead. It was the road to the cross. But it certainly had to be confusing. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. It had created quite the commotion. The event was polarizing. Some people hosted a banquet in his honor. If you look in chapter 12 and verses 1 to 8, he is the guest at the banquet. One being celebrated. And then others responded to this event, this miraculous event, by plotting to put Lazarus back in the grave and to put Jesus there with him. They wanted to stifle him, to end this. News was spreading quickly. Jesus' fame was swelling due to all of these miraculous signs. And in a rush of religious fervor, the crowds, which were packed into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, heard that Jesus planned to enter into the city. So they gathered palm branches and they lined the route into Jerusalem. It was a royal procession. They were welcoming him into his city. There was enthusiasm. There was curiosity. There was tremendous interest in Jesus. How it's important for us to note that this enthusiasm, this curiosity, and this interest cannot be confused with genuine faith. You see it all across the Gospel of John. There's enthusiasm, there's curiosity, and there's interest. But then there's a lack of genuine faith. The crowds, we learn, came out because of the sign. But what we encounter here is a fickle and also a super, superficial faith. Encountering signs but not truly believing. And in verse 37 of chapter 12, we see the final verdict. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And friends, this is what sets up the final climatic days of Jesus' life. Miraculous events, signs unfolding, 
and different reactions, conservative and liberal, all kinds of different agendas, people looking at Jesus in different ways, interpreting his words, interpreting his actions in a whole host of manners. And then there were some Greeks who showed up. They had traveled to attend the Passover festival. They were most likely God-fearing proselytes, not full converts to Judaism yet, but they come and they find Philip, who was from Galilee. He would have been Greek-speaking. And so they seek him out and they tell him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And what they were asking for is they were requesting a private audience with Jesus. They wanted to meet with him. They wanted to satisfy their own curiosity and their own interest to be able to see who this Jesus really was. And certainly Philip could broker that private audience. But what's so interesting to note is that Jesus receives that request. He receives the request for the private audience, but then he doesn't grant it. If you follow from verses 23 through 50, you'll see that Jesus doesn't grant the private audience. But what he does is he proceeds to explain what it means to see him. That is, he's going to do some teaching here about what it means to truly see him. Their request, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus is then going to explain, this is what it means to see me. And it's crucial for us today to hear Jesus because he explains one thing to us about what it means to see him to truly gain a sight of him. And what it means to truly see Jesus, to truly gain a sight of him, is to understand the cross that he bears. This will become Jesus' subject. The request to see him, and then Jesus teaches about his cross. And then he says, the one who sees me sees the Father. And so Jesus is making a bold and Jesus is making a very provocative claim here that there is no knowledge of God, that there is no appropriate enthusiasm, that there is no real faith without seeing the cross. And so there are four things specifically that Jesus presses us here in John 12 to see about the cross. The first is that we have to appreciate the revelation of the cross Secondly, we have to appreciate the logic of it. Third, the vocation of the cross. And finally, the victory of the cross. And so let's look at each of those briefly this morning. First, we must see the revelation of the cross. You'll see in verse 23 that Jesus begins to describe his imminent demise, his death that was coming. And he says in verse 23 that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This hour had been spoken of in the, since the early pages of the gospel where he says his hour has not yet arrived, but now he has changed that and he says the hour has come. But then he speaks of his death in an unusual way. He says that his death is a glorification. He will refer to this in the same way in verse 32, where he says there that his death is a being lifted up or an exaltation. There Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
Now, what's important for us to appreciate is Jesus here is picking up on language from the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 40 of Isaiah, in verse 5, the prophet speaks of a future day when the glory of God would be revealed, that is, seen again in Israel. Then in chapter 52, Isaiah connects this event of revelation of the glory of God with the rule of God's anointed servant who was going to come. And in verse 13, we learn that that servant shall be high and lifted up, or what could be translated glorified. And so Jesus brings these two concepts together. The revelation of God's glory, God showing up again in Israel, and also of the anointed servant being lifted up. And he allows these two images to collide. And so we have to ask the question, what does it mean? And friends, simply put, it means that the glory of God is revealed in Jesus being hung on the cross. That to be lifted up from the earth, to be exalted, and the way that Jesus uses that term is to be crucified. And so the public instrument of torture and the public instrument of humiliation in the first century Roman world devised to brutalize its victims and devised to intimidate the masses is transformed here in the hands of God. And it's transformed to reveal God to us. And friends, what we learn in the revelation that happens, the glory that appears in Jesus being lifted up and being publicly crucified, being publicly humiliated, what we see here is a revelation of the glory of God, that God is for us. And this is what's being revealed in the cross of his son, Jesus Christ, that God is for us, utterly completely and profoundly for us, that he has given his own son in our place, that our communion with him could be restored. In his short book, God Crucified, Richard Baucom writes this about the moment of the cross. In this act of self-giving, God is most truly himself and defines himself for the world. That here we see not only God in action, the Son of God being crucified, but we also see who God is in giving himself for us. And so God truly reveals himself to us in the cross of Jesus. And to see Jesus, we must receive that revelation that this is God acting on our behalf to reconcile us to himself. This is the nature of God. Second, we must move past the revelation to also see the logic of the cross in verse 24, Jesus turns and says these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. To explain what was to come, what was to take place, Jesus reached into the natural world of agriculture. It was a readily accessible metaphor. And a grain of wheat must fall from its flower to take root and produce a yield. This is simply how the mechanics work. What looks to be its demise is what actually leads to its bountiful harvest. 
And so it is with the cross of Jesus. There's only life and a great harvest for others if a death precedes. But friends, it's precisely in this logic that a death must proceed before there is a harvest of life that challenges every assumption of human wisdom. And it is this logic that is the fundamental offense of Jesus. Because what Jesus is saying here is that there is no knowledge of God, that there is no life with God, there is no true religion apart from his substitution. That is that a death is necessary, that a grain of wheat must fall into the ground if there is to be fruit, if there is to be life with God, that he must die to reconcile, that Jesus must be for us in our place, taking our judgment in order to bring our judgment to an end. And friends, Jesus says that this is the logic of the cross, that the eternal son sent from the father who gave up his communion with his father in order to take on human sin and the weight of it, dies in our place. Death couldn't hold him. And now because he has received our judgment, we in him are able to enjoy communion with the father again, our sins forgiven. This is the logic of the cross. The grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies in order to reconcile us to the father. But third, we also see the vocation of the cross. If you follow with me in verse 26, Jesus says these words. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. In speaking of his impending death, Jesus says that where I am, you will be also. Now, there's a few places that Jesus then goes that are very instructive. In the next chapter, we will find Jesus taking up a towel and washing the feet of his servant, symbolizing their forgiveness. And then we will find Jesus going to the cross, bearing the sins of the world, suffering in the place of others, taking up the way of the cross, Jesus explains to his disciples that those who serve him must follow him, and those who serve him will be where he is. And friends, this is where the cross sets up not only the way of salvation for us, but also places a particular calling upon our lives. Martin Luther, the great reformer, captures it perhaps best when he says that Jesus bears a cross for us, but he also bestows a cross upon us. That is that the cross is not only the means of our salvation, but the cross is also what forges a way of life for us. It gives us a path ahead. It is a life of self-denial in which we learn to turn away from our own wisdom, in which we learn to turn away from our self-interest, in which we learn to turn away from our sinful affections, and we turn to God. It's a life in which we learn the ways of love, in which we forgive one another and we're gracious to one another. It's a life in which we learn sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom. And it's a life in which we learn service. 
And Jesus is saying to us that we actually find life and we find the deepest meaning of life when we live in this sacrificial shape in serving God and giving ourselves to others. And friends, this takes us back into that challenging logic of the cross. That Jesus says there is life in his own demise. And we are told that life comes and life emerges for us practically, existentially, in reality, when we give ourselves in service to other people. Several years ago, I was sitting with a young woman when I was planting a church in Arlington, Virginia. And she was coming with a practical pastoral problem. And she was just explaining that she felt distant from God and that she wanted to renew her communion with him in, in the coming year. It was a New Year's conversation. One of the things for my friend is I began to ask what she was doing in her devotional life and what she was also engaged in outside of her workplace and different habits and things as we began to just talk about her activities and the things and habits that she had taken up is that my friend was a very boundaried person. Because I had suggested to her that the way to find a fulfilling and meaningful and satisfactory life was to take up this counterintuitive logic of the gospel and that there was the need to find ways of serving other people. But she was very concerned that this was going to infringe on life. And so at each opportunity we talked about serving other people, there was resistance. And there were five reasons as to why that wouldn't work and how that wouldn't bring fulfillment and satisfaction. And as we ran through that conversation, again and again, running into boundary after boundary after boundary, it's instructive for all of us, friends, because we can find all kinds of reasons. We have this angst and this yearning for life. We want it, and we see the way Jesus tells us to find it. It's through self-denial and sacrifice. This is where meaning is had, falling into the ground and dying, and this is what bears fruit. And yet we hold on to our self-interested ways with a very tight fist, with all of our boundaries and all of our excuses. And Jesus is calling us into a broader way and a broader path. And he's calling us to true life indeed. And finally, final thing here that Jesus says about the cross is that he also wants us to see the victory of the cross. Verse 31, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It's interesting that Jesus says that the judgment of the world was now. Speaking about his time. Speaking about his hour. And Jesus is here drawing our attention to this one particular hour. To this moment in the history of the world. And that is the moment of his cross. And that is Jesus is explaining that the judgment of the world, the climactic moment of the judgment of the world has already taken place. There is still yet a judgment to come, but the climactic moment of that judgment has already been played out. It's important that we hear Jesus on this. 
Because he is teaching us that the judgment of the world, the destruction of sin and death, and of sin and death's master, takes place in the event of the cross. That the judge enters into judgment upon himself in order to bring about the end of all judgment for those who would seek refuge in him. And Jesus here claims that he will overcome in his hour through his cross. He will overcome sin and death and the ruler of this world and he will defeat them. And we have to ask the practical question, why? What gives him the authority to do so? And friends, it is because he is the one who has the right and the privilege to call God Father. And he is the obedient son. And it is this obedient son who calls God his father and does so without hesitation and also does so appropriately. Who goes and stands in our place. He is the one righteous one. And death put a claim on him and death could not hold him because he is the one righteous one. And friends, it's because he is that righteous one who stands in our place and receives our death, taking our judgment, that we have victory, that sin and death were defeated. And so the cross, this heinous instrument of torture, this heinous instrument of judgment in the ancient world becomes the sign of victory for the Christian. And so we want to see Jesus like those Greeks coming from afar, sir, we wish to see Jesus. If we wish to see Jesus in this year, then we must come to the cross. It is the cross where there is the revelation of God, who he is and what he has done. The gracious and the merciful God who is for us in his son. It is there at the cross that we learn the logic of salvation. That is how God works his plan falling into the ground and dying. It's there at the cross that we hear our vocation, the new calling upon our lives, that our lives would by degrees gradually be shaped by the way of the cross in which we give ourselves to one another. And it's there at the cross that we hear the great victory of God, the righteous one suffering on our behalf in order to bring an end to all judgment. Friends, this is what it means to see Jesus. Let's ask for God's help to see him. Father, we too would wish to see Jesus in this year ahead. And we ask that you grant us help, that we will behold his glory, that we will see him lifted up, that we will not shy away, that we'll embrace the logic of what it means for one to die, that many could be reconciled. Grant us eyes to see, grant us ears to hear, open our hearts. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.